Welcome to the Show Me and Sue podcast. I'm Zach Lawhorn from Show Me Opportunity, and today I'm joined by David Stokes, Susan Pennegrass, and Elias Chapellis from Show Me Institute. Susan, earlier this week, the State Board of Education released their 2022 legislative priorities. What were they? I mean, I don't know if pigs were flying, but it was pretty incredible that the State Board of Education, who has typically been very against giving parents choices, been very against uh, teacher performance pay, um, very against, um, not very against, who am I to say, didn't seem to be for like uh, districts getting together and collaborating. However, all of these things were on their list of legislative priorities for 2022. They uh, included as a priority uh, adopting interdistrict choice for the state, which would mean that students could go outside their home district. Right now, we have a law that says, basically, if you have a uh, what they call transportation hardship, let's say you're in a rural district and the high school in the district next to you is actually closer to your home, you can apply for interdistrict choice. But that's a very rare exception. And now uh, they would like to see, apparently, the State Board of of Education supports the legislature passing open enrollment for every student, which means we could cross district lines. It would be really interesting because it would allow... Uh, districts, rural districts in particular, to uh, compete for students. If they decided they really wanted to have like the top high school in the region, like the Lake of the Ozarks region or, you know, Northeast Missouri, then they would have the opportunity to attract students from other districts and get their state funding. So it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out or if it plays out. There's a bill that's been pre-filed on interdistrict choice um, by House Rep. Pollitt. And, um, you know, I, I'll be really curious to see if it actually happens. They had to, of course, put something in the bill to take care of students who are moving for the football team or the basketball coach. Uh, so I believe if they somehow figure out that a student is moving for sports, then they get redshirted for a year. They're trying to work around that and to work around sort of the transportation costs that they fall on parents. But in the, the pre-filed bill, there would be a certain amount of money set aside by the treasurer. Uh, treasurer's office to reimburse parents for transportation costs. So, you know, it happens in a lot of other states. It happens in a lot of other major cities, Denver, New Orleans, Indianapolis, Camden, New Jersey, lots of places, New York have uh, open enrollment. So I'll be very curious to see if it happens here. So how much weight should we put on this list of legislative priorities? I mean, the Show Me Institute just released uh, our 2022 blueprint, which is a collection of ideas. Is this document from the State Board of Education on the scale of wish list to uh, edict? Where where does it fall? You know, I don't recall if they put them out in prior years. I guess I should know that. But um, I would like to say that it's as forceful as our legislative blueprint, which means, you know, they're going to be working on it. But they're in Jefferson City and they have the ear of of folks. And this is the state board who are appointed by the governor. Some of the things in the document sort of make me wonder if the governor's office didn't have a hand in it. Um, There's a voluntary pre-K that they would like to see instituted. And that's kind of interesting to me because in the Build Back Better bill that Congress might pass. There's universal pre-K and universal pre-K would require the state of Missouri to match funds, match federal funds. And I wonder if they're sort of positioning Missouri to say, we're not going to participate in that. We're going to stay with voluntary pre-K. But, you know, maybe they have the power to make things happen if this is what they say they want. Now, there's some things that 
the State Board of Education already has the power to do, that they don't need legislation. I'd like them to also put together a list of those things that they're going to work on, like meaningful school report cards, something we talk about all the time, and a really uh, strong new system of accountability. They're about to implement the latest one, the Missouri School Improvement Plan 6, MSIP 6. And, you know, they have the ability to make those uh, really high quality. I'm not sure. I'm, I'm concerned that they won't be. But, um, you know, I think, what were my edict and wish list? Yeah. I would say probably past the center point on the way to edict. I think they're more than a wish list just because they do have influence. But um, I hope, I mean, I, you know, I've been down to give testimony in Jefferson City at hearings of, of the education committees and the Association of School Boards, Association of Superintendents, the teacher union leadership. They all seem to be working against these ideas. So if somehow the state board and DESE is for it, I'd love to be on the same side of the table as them. I would hope it moves past edict into the level of papal bull. <laughs> but I, I think that would be I, a nice I, progression. That, I mean, yeah. that might violate the uh, separation of ch church and state that we that we have here. However, I would like to say though that in the states that have been successful in implementing big school choice ideas, like Arizona, Florida, even Colorado. Uh, what you have seen in, in Tennessee, what's been in common with those states is really strong leadership who uh, decides to make education a central issue of their, I mean, of their governorship. I mean, it comes from the very top. And so when we've seen states really turn things around in Florida, you know, it was Jeb Bush. They really did. Doug Ducey in Arizona. Like these, these are governors that are saying we want to do the very most we can to make that public education top priority in our state and to make us the top of the you know, top 10 in the United States. Missouri had a top 10 by 2020, embarrass, embarrassingly enough, that they ditched. Um, we're in like the 30s when it comes to state rankings. So I would love to see the very top leadership, the governor of the state, try to take the lead on these issues and really create a public education system that parents and families want and that would bring families to the state. On, before we move on quickly, Susan, uh, at showmeanstreet.org, we try to steer clear of clickbait titles and, you know, alarmism. Sure. This week you had a blog post that was titled House on Fire. So that sounds like an emergency to me. What, Whose house is on fire and uh, how big are the flames? What's going on? I, I was accused of that being my second Talking Heads title, which I guess. Um, the house is on fire. Last year, I mean, okay, so... The state released test scores at the state level a month or so ago from 2020, 2021, from the last school year. And they're terrible. They are really terrible. And they came with all of these qualifications and cautions and warnings. Don't read into these. Don't compare them to the prior year. Don't use these for decision making. Basically, like, don't read them. Don't pay attention to them. And what I was saying is we, if the house is on fire, we got to start putting it out, right? And so the um the test scores in math is what i specifically focused on in that blog in the last school year 10 percent of black students scored proficient or above in math 90 percent did not 90 percent of students with disabilities and students with disabilities who have individual education plans so they were the hardest hit with this pandemic right so from the beginning the school shut down i heard anecdotally from lots of parents that their child who has an iep was not getting the services they needed right imagine that you have a child with a visual disability what are they doing with zoom like these 
children were literally not getting services and the test scores prove that out. Uh, the test scores for virtual only students are terrible. And so my point, I mean, statewide, 35% of kids tested proficient or on grade level, 65 did not. My point was like, rather than trying to sugarcoat this and trying to qualify everything, we need to to acknowledge the fact the house is on fire, we need to do something, we need to do it immediately. And we have a ton of money coming into the state of, in the billions, three billion, I think, um, in stimulus. And uh, we have the money to do this, right? So what the money's being put towards seemingly that I can find right now is teacher recruitment and retention and uh, principal um, professional development and things that are kind of like longer term. And I think we need to do something immediate and we need to do it now. Other states are giving um, like grants and scholarships directly to parents. Tennessee just announced they're using 200 million in their stimulus funding to give tutoring grants directly to parents, which is exactly what parents want. They want tutoring and they want it yesterday. They want their kids to get caught up because they know they're behind. So tutoring has been the one thing that's been proven to make a difference, um, small group or one-on-one. -on -one. And these are the kind of things that we should be doing rather than these sort of long-term investing into the uh, system as it currently exists. We need to, to really uh, pivot to things that will directly help students right now. David, in the last couple of months, you've been keeping track of a development in Webster Groves, the Douglas Hill development. Um, there was an, a big update in the story this week. What happened? Well, the city of Webster Groves on Tuesday night voted down the proposal. They they voted unanimously to to reject it, along with the, the all the aspects of it. Now, I do have a question, which I need to study a little more as to whether or not they rejected the t the TIF aspect of it. I don't, I hear that they might not have voted that down. They just skipped over that part, which means they didn't pass it. But can they then imitate Crestwood and institute the same TIF in the future if they didn't reject it? So more to come on future podcasts about that. But in the meantime, there's the good news that the, the Douglas Hill development with very large apartment complex condos, retail, shopping would have been very nice, I'm, sh I'm sure. But it also had a huge 35 to $40 million tax subsidy involved with it. They had eminent domain, which is, I th which is the worst part of it, that if businesses in the existing area, which is not a blighted area, okay? If you've been to this part of North Central Webster, it's not blighted. It might not be as fantastic as everybody wants it to be, but it's a very nice area. There's small businesses operating there. There's a gym center that's a wonderful gym center. My kids have been there for parties. And... Look, if people don't want to close their business and sell, they shouldn't be made to under eminent domain. It's just awful. So kudos to the Webster Grove City Council for stopping this this project as it is, not going forward with the eminent domain of the tax subsidies, the floodplain development, and then the, the changes to the neighborhood character, which wasn't an objection of the Show Me Institute per se, but certainly people in that area. You know, this is a dispute that... People have when new proposals and developments are brought into the area. It's certainly happening right now at the border of the city of St. Louis and University City at Del Mar and and, and Skinker, which is in the city but close to your city. So we'll we'll and that's something I'm sure we'll talk about as well in coming weeks. So it's just good to see slowly but surely around the state, like Boonville, which Elias and I talked about many times on this podcast, people are starting to push back against the 
constant overuse and abuse of tax subsidies. And maybe we'll get to a point where subsidies are reserved for the developments that might actually be in truly blighted areas and might need a little government subsidy instead of just assuming they're going to be useful in everything. And people are getting sick of that, and they should be. And it's great to see people pushing back. And there was at least a portion of the Douglas Hill project that was being rushed through because of some new uh, guidelines or um, laws that are going to be on the books January 1st, right? Well, well, the whole thing, but especially the TIF, because that TIFs in floodplains in much of Missouri, with some exceptions, but the this project would not have met those exceptions, would uh, will be illegal as of January 1st. So that's why... Future Show Me Institute research will have to see exactly what they did with with the TIF. And if they didn't reject the TIF, they just sort of held it and rejected everything else. You wonder if they're going to try to come back with a different development and just allow that TIF to be given to the new developer now that the county TIF commission, unfortunately, approved it. That's what happened in Crestwood. Like, we're not pulling this out of the air. And at the Deerberg's development on Watson and Crestwood, the, the developers just about six months ago, said, ah, we're, we're not going to go for a new TIF and with all the controversy this is causing. We're just going to take the TIF that was passed five years ago and we'll take that as our own, which gives them five years less of a tax subsidy. So from a taxpayer perspective, that's more, go- go- more good than bad, although it's still bad they're using it at all. But it leaves the question of, do these TIFs once passed, do they just stay stay there until they're acted upon or formally rejected. And and if they are, you know, if the Crestwood example was not a one-off, one-time thing, maybe we need some legislative changes if this is going to be a new a new thing people try to pull. This is where I'm going to ask you to speculate. And Elias and Susan, please jump in on this. Uh, do you think that there was kind of this era, the early 2000s, mid-2000s, of the massive development, the live-work-play development? And now everyone has kind of seen how those turn out. You get a yoga studio, you get a... Uh, you know, a, a liquor and smoothie shop and like right. apartments. And, uh, we'll and have now, a microbrewery right over right. there. And so we've had uh, 15, 20 years of people seeing those drawings, getting real excited, and then everything. And now people are just kind of over it. Like we have a bunch of those in the St. Louis region. You drive across the country, you see them off the highway everywhere. Do you think people are just kind of over that concept? Well, I, I don't know if people are over the concept. I certainly like mixed use development. So we did actually a great video at Show Me Institute on the mixed-use development, the Boulevard Richmond Heights, which across from the Galleria, which sort of delusionally thought they were going to turn this artificial shopping center into a, a, a place to live with condos. And, and the retail portion of that development succeeded nicely, but the home residents just failed completely. Like nobody wanted to live there. So I don't know if people are done with the concept, but I hope they're done with the tax subsidies, which are often asked for. And with that, Susan, you were going to. Yeah, I was going to say, I see the opposite of that a lot too, right? So on Delmar, there's a, there's a high rise apartment called Everly and it's supposed to have retail on the first floor and there's none. And then they're building a couple of high rises at uh, DeBoliver and Forest Park Parkway near the metro station, which might be a good place to live if you take the metro all the time. But then I really wonder if they're going to get the retail and the restaurants that they have the the beautiful drawings on the windows that they're going to be there. But will they actually show up and will they stay? So in terms of, for me, getting tired of those things, I feel like they're always promising that there'll be restaurants and stores and then there's just empty storefronts. Right. It's like it's like the, the 
the lofts at Soto Soko, which was a, a classic South Park episode on the, on this on this exact question, which I highly recommend people go watch because it's hysterical. So yeah, our position at Chimney is much more focused on the tax subsidy and eminent domain aspect of these of these developments, and so many of them, probably most of them in our region, involve varying various tax subsidies, whether direct like a TIF or or an additional sales tax on the retail, like a SID or a TDD. In the loop, of course, they had the disastrous TDD to fund the disastrous trolley that cost a fortune and didn't move anybody. So is, is that where we're going with these types of spe- special tax districts? I hope we get rid of those. And without those subsidies, if developers can still make live, work, play developments work and get the market for that, more, more, power, more power to them. And I do think that especially when located near transit or bus routes and the like, that those parking requirements, it's too many suburbs apply, uh, cities and suburbs apply too stringently. I think a lot of those parking requirements should be dr- dramatically removed for places near transit. I do agree with that. I do think that, you know, just in these developments, it's become a little bit easier to um, oppose them. People have ideas in their back of their mind of some of these failed developments. And especially uh, one of the big deals in Boonville was the school districts are coming out against these TIFs. And so, you know, at first, a lot of, uh, you know, people don't really know how TIF works. It's a pretty kind of confusing topic. But now um, a city can't really slide, uh, you know, through the dead of night getting this thing through without people hearing about it. Normally, it's a kind of a groundswell of people a development close to their house or something they care about. And then they can find those, uh, you know, this is going to hurt the school district. This is, think of this other development where this, you know, they didn't get the retail on the bottom, on the bottom level. And so then, you know, as people learn more about how these things work and benefit these developers and don't help the town and they hurt the schools, it's become a, you know, a little bit easier to, you know, get your voice out there and uh, make it more difficult for city councils and TIF commissions to approve these things. No, I, I love the University City Loop, and I want it to su- succeed. I met my wife at Blueberry Hill. I live in University City. I'm I we're in the Loop all all the time, and I like the the first floor retail standard in the Loop. I don't necessarily think it it needs to be an absolute law. <laughs> That must be done every time, but I think it certainly gives the loop a great feel for when when we're there. So I want more, more than any other place. My personal opinion is for the U City Loop as much as any place in the state of Missouri. So I like these developments. I like more people. I agree with that. I don't there. disagree. I'm just saying a bunch of them are empty, <laughs> right? And some of them never had retail in them. So I think the selling point for some of those buildings has been that there'll be retail or a restaurant on the first floor and a bunch of them are, are empty. I don't know what the problem is um, east of Skinker, but it just seems that things don't do as well as they do west of Skinker. I mean, I've, I've lived in this area my, my whole life and I can, I remember the eighties, like east of Skinker and that loop was, I mean, it was, it was a rough. It was a rough area. That's where we went. That's where we went to buy beer in high school. To the to the liquor stores there that didn't card. Like that's. It's been rough to see its transformation over the past twenty years. Pie Pizza, the pageant, the bowling alley, the that's region, right. the regional arts center. I mean, it's wonderful, wonderful. I don't know if there's going to be a. 
I don't know if it's going to transform its way all the way to connect with the Central West End or if there's going to stay an area in the, an area in the middle. I don't know. I hope that's for entrepreneurs and markets and private, private business decisions and private choices on who wants to move and build their own community. Uh, I think the University City Loop is strong enough that much of this area can be done without tax subsidies, and that's, that's where I'm going to keep my argument. All right, so moving on from the gas station where high school David Stokes bought beer to Jefferson City. Elias, Governor Parson earlier this week said that he wants to raise the minimum wage for government workers in Missouri to $15 an hour and give a cost of living raise of 5.5%. Two questions, do we have the money and does a minimum wage have the same impacts in the public sector as it would in the private sector? Well, first thing, I guess we technically have the money. The The bigger question is, you know, should we be doing this and should we be doing this uh, right now? So when Governor Parson is talking about this, raising the minimum wage and giving a raise to state employees, um, he's throwing around a number of $91 million. Uh, th- what he's talking about there is raising the um, how much state employees are getting paid starting February 1st. That's not really something that he could control, so he's basically asking the legislature to approve money to do that on February 1st, and that $91 million, that will just cover paying these um, employees more money from February to the end of June. So this is not a long-term thing. Um, when you're talking about year-to-year, that's more of a more than $200 million um, investment. And when you're talking about just how you raise uh employee salaries for the state of Missouri. Uh, so $15 minimum wage, you kind of have to look at, well, how many people working for the state of Missouri are making less than that? Uh, the majority of the cost is actually going towards the other part, the cost of living increase. So the um, starting January 1st, state employees are getting a 2% uh, raise. Governor Parson is saying on February 1st, he would like to give them a 5.5% raise on top of that. And so that's where most of the money here is going towards. And don't get me wrong. Every every state survey that comes out shows that Missouri employees are getting paid less than a lot of other state employees. So th- there there is some sort of deficiency there. But the question becomes, how good is the government at setting setting these um, salaries? Because you don't have a competitive labor market here. We don't we don't know what all um, you know positions are currently making less than fifteen dollars an hour, and what exactly. All that's going to mean, but what we do know is that right now we're in the situation where um, you know wages are going up. There's inflation. The state of Missouri has more revenue than they've had in a while. They have federal money. Uh, costs are going up, and they're trying to keep workers. But this is not just a one-time. This is not just a one-time cost. You're looking at just the cost of maintaining the status quo in Jefferson City is going to be going up by at least $218 million per year if this happens. And we have to remember that employee salaries for um, Missouri, that this is not just their hourly rate. You're talking about a lifetime pension system, uh, those obligations. And you're talking about one of the most generous healthcare um, insurance plans in the state. So there's a lot of other costs to this. And I think it's a little bit more complicated. And I'm I'm worried that the governor is um, kind of getting I think I think it's really easy right now to try to spend more uh, money than we necessarily have, um, just because we have some cash in the bank today. And that could be a theme that we see throughout this upcoming session, right? That there's going to be uh, different factions 
in the budget process that are thinking now's the time, like more more than ever, now is the time to get this big uh, expenditure that I want because we have the cash. And if we I do that, to... go ahead, Susan. Sorry, I interrupt you. Um, that's right. I talked about the interdistrict choice being on the school, State Board of Education's priorities. Another priority is raising minimum teacher salaries from 25000 to 35000 although I don't think hardly any get paid anywhere near 25000 Taking pre-K kids, four and five-year-olds, and adding them to, to school enrollment. Um, increasing transportation funding, increasing the education funding formula. So there's a whole bunch of things in there where they're like, okay, we've got all this money. Let's think about how we're going to spend it. And maybe interdistrict choice was sort of a concession for that. But I mean, Elias, you know more than I do. I bet you there's going to be a lot of people trying to make money grabs this year. Well, I think I think the past few years I've been saying, you know, kind of worried about where money's going to go. And you, you do learn a lot when there are revenue concerns for the state. You know, you might have to cut some stuff. Where are you making these important priority decisions? But in some ways, when you have too much money, these uh, decisions are even more important because you can really just throw money around to bad, you know, areas. And that's why when we were talking about all this relief funding, um, we, you know, we're pretty strongly in the camp of don't be making, you know, long-term investment things here that are going to increase costs in other areas after this relief money is gone. Because you're, you're already looking at something right now where Missouri's budget is bigger than ever. Um, Missouri's Medicaid program bigger than ever. We just expanded Medicaid two months ago. Already have over 15,000 people uh, on the expanded version of the program. And healthcare costs are going up. You know, there's all this money for education. We're talking about increasing the salaries for all the state workers. I mean, there's costs going up everywhere. And the fact of the matter is the relief money is going to run out. Uh, some of the money for Medicaid that is kind of part of the relief is going to be running out. You're going to have uh, state revenues today are higher than they were, you know, in 2020. They're about 25% higher. So if even if we have state tax collections higher than ever before, that's not to say they're going to stay here, you know. And we have just in June of just in June of 2020, you know, state revenues were over a billion dollars lower. So what happens whenever we go back into a scenario like that? And you know, as I've said multiple times before, we don't really have any sort of rainy day fund to protect us from whenever something like this happens. So I, I'm worried about what we're doing, but we're going to learn a lot this year over, uh, you know, which which groups are going to get the uh, get the money because there's plenty of it to go around. All right. Usually when we're wrapping up, I ask what you're looking forward, uh, what you're looking at, keeping tabs on in the next week. Let's expand it out to the end of the year, right before the start of the session. David Stokes, what are you going to be keeping tabs on for the rest of 2021? I'm curious, and I need to. I checked the other day, and it wasn't out yet. I'm going to check today uh, with the state auditor's property tax report, uh, which they do each year when they review the property tax levels of all the local governments in Missouri. And I do want to do some research and find out whether, by anecdote or even better, extensive data on on how property tax rates around the state were lowered in response to the pretty large increase in, in residential property values that the whole country has seen, including Missouri. And I want to I want to research whether some taxing entities around the state have not been rolling their rates back as they are required to, and uh, what can be done about that in cases that they haven't done it. Because I've, I've certainly been shown one example by a supportive show me of a taxing district in the Kansas City area that didn't roll their rates back at all, 
and in a residential area with high increases in property values. So I want to find out more about that. Susan? Well, um, a few days ago, the department, DESE, quietly put the school and district level test score data from last year up on their website to be downloaded. So I have downloaded it and we promised to update our school rankings website when new data came out and we I'm starting on it now. And I hope to get that, you know, I hope to have something to update that website by, you know, in the first couple of months of the year. But right now I'm just looking at it. So that's what I'll be paying attention to. And that website is mostschoolrankings.org. Go check it out. Uh, Elias. Well, the um, the pre-filing started, I think you mentioned earlier, on December 1st. And uh, with Governor Parson announcing this um, proposed pay raise, we're talking about a pretty big supplemental budget bill that will be um, presumably need to be approved by before February 1st. So if the for the rates to go into effect and the legislature doesn't go into session until um, I think January 5th or something like that. And so we're with a supplemental uh, funding bill on the uh, horizon here, looking at what all could be going in there and how that impacts the pre-filing. Because we're talking about um, right now, there's no funding in the budget for Medicaid expansion. Missouri's already expanded Medicaid. So there should be uh, the normal appropriation for Medicaid are running out. So they will be needing to put some funding in there for that. My understanding is that... Um, Roughly $2 billion needs to be appropriated for DESE from relief funds by March, or they ha- the state has to send that back. And I think uh, I think they have to come up with some ideas for where to put that, uh, spend that money, as opposed to just giving it to DESE. So there's a lot of important decisions the legislature has to figure out in very short order. And so I'll be keeping, up, keeping tabs on that and writing about it when I can. All right. And as always, plenty more at showmeinstitute.org, including the 2022 blueprint. You can download your copy there. Susan, David, Elias, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Thank you.